Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science needs practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. Hello and welcome to this episode of Sustainability Unwrapped podcast by Hanken School of Economics. And on this episode, we will discuss why we must address corruption in the quest for sustainability. Uh, my name is Neema Komba and I will be hosting this episode from Helsinki. I am a second year doctoral student in entrepreneurship management and organization. And I am joined today by Matthew Jenkins, who is a knowledge and research manager at Transparency International, all the way from Berlin. Um, and Transparency International is a global movement that works in over 100 countries to end injustice of corruption by promoting transparency, accountability, and integrity. And I'm also joined by Priska Koa, all the way from Dar es Salaam, and she is a senior officer at Policy Forum, a network of over 70 uh, civil society organizations in Tanzania. So welcome, Matt and Priska, and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Nima, for the kind introduction. So why must we address corruption in the quest for sustainability? As this episode is called Sustainability Unwrapped, um, I thought about this um, corruption as something that we must address. And not just because I said it, but there's been a lot of other people who have said the same, that corruption is one of the biggest impediments to towards achieving sustainable development goals and sustainability in general, social, environmental, and, econ and economic sustainability. So then why corruption? As Transparency International defines it, corruption is the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. Um, and it includes many different things, including bribery, collusion, embezzlement of public funds, fraud, extortion, favoritism, patronage. And in some cases, it can even be viewed positively as um, speed money or greasing the wheels where systems fail to give citizens what they require in a timely manner. And it affects both private and public sectors. And it can be hidden or sometimes out in the open with very, very clear consequences and visible um, transactions. Um, and it, it does affect people in their daily lives and it also affects policy decisions. And, and there are no clean countries basically. And I remember looking at this Transparency International Corruption Perception Index, which scores and ranks about 180 countries um, by levels of perceived corruption, and that only 2% are least corrupt. Most countries are corrupt or very corrupt or mostly corrupt. Um, and this kind of made me think. I grew up in Tanzania myself, and maybe a few years ago, eight years ago, I wrote this poem called Corruption. And I will read it to you. Don't laugh at my poetry <laughs> so much. But it was it was about how in how it was in our in, in our daily lives. Um, and I'll read it. Corruption, corruption. Let's let's declare this an epidemic. 
for it spreads slowly like a cancer, from the bottom traffic police to the top maker of policy. Corruption, reason why wrong leaders get voted in and an honest man rots in prison. Corruption, why the poor have no voice and dreams have no chance. Corruption, why patients have no choice. See, corruption killed my young son because a good doctor needed his money. Without a thousand, there was no medicine, no bed. But this man has a family that needs to be fed and he gets a measly pay. So I held my baby tight until finally his little life crushed. But I don't blame the doctor, nor do I blame death. I blame this corruption plague. So this was a very reflection of life in general where I was living and in Tanzania at the time that it you can't get certain services and it, you know it affects the voting the democracy rather of the country and it affects so many things in our day-to-day -day lives um, but the question comes why must we discuss this in the con in the context of sustainability or the context of sustainable development um, and I will start by talking to asking Matthew this question. Why must we care about corruption when talking about sustainability and the 2030 sustainable development goals? Um, is it something that is it necessary, really? Thanks very much for the uh, for the introduction, Nima, and also for the for the very powerful poem that I think really illustrates some of the themes that we'll be talking about today, which is that corruption links um, inextricably towards kind of systems of inequality and, and power asymmetries. Um, and I couldn't have phrased it better than myself than you, than you did in the introduction, where you say that corruption is a very powerful impediment um, for the SDGs. Although I would perhaps take issue with the characterization that corruption can be productive in some circumstances. We can come onto that potentially. Um, you also mentioned the kind of the corruption perceptions index, which uh, ranks countries based on perceived levels of uh, corruption in their public sector. Um, and again, I couldn't agree more with your assessment that all all, um, all countries are afflicted by forms of corruption, one form or another. So the CPI, as useful a advocacy tool as it is for us, um, doesn't capture everything, as you said. Um, so let me maybe take a step back and start, as you as you suggested, with trying to underline why I think that uh, anti-corruption efforts should be at the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals. I think, in in a sense, um, if we look back to 2015 when the goals were agreed, it was quite an important moment for us in the anti-corruption world because it was the first time that world leaders recognised. Um, in an international development agenda that without foregrounding governance issues like corruption, uh, sustainable development couldn't be achieved. And I think this is a lesson learned from the previous kind of international development framework, the Millennium Development Goals, which is some of the positive outcomes in the short term will become very difficult to sustain if corrupt practices go unabated. And so as a result of that, as I said, in 2015, we saw that specific anti-corruption targets were included in part of uh, goal 16 of the SDGs, which is about peace, justice and strong institutions. And at TI, we see that uh, corruption undermines sustainable development in three main ways. First of all, it obstructs the development of peaceful, just and inclusive societies. So the kind of mantra and the ethos of, uh, of goal 16 itself. So corruption represents a major obstacle to, uh, to, you know, to achieving peace, justice and strong institutions because it deepens fragility within countries, it generates conflict and it prevents access to justice for those in need. So here we can talk about corruption and the sustainable development goals as seeing corruption as a kind of a standalone issue, a problem in its own right. 
Second, however, I think there's another way of considering the problem, which is not to see corruption in isolation, but also to understand how corruption affects all of the other goals. You know, if, if you're talking about healthcare, education, and so on, without strong institutions, good governance and integrity around the world, that societies are kind of really going to struggle to meet their full potential. Where corruption plagues hospitals, um, you know, the progress towards targets in healthcare is really very difficult to accomplish. You can say the same thing for schools all manner of kind of service delivery. You can see that goals on poverty eradication, clean water, affordable energy, gender equality, all of these really noble and admirable targets that we're trying to achieve in the next 10 years um, are gonna be really difficult to do unless we uh, minimize the effect that corruption has on these other issues. So this is why I would say we can see corruption as well as a cross-cutting issue that cuts across the, the sustainable development framework. And the third uh, issue I would point to is that corruption cripples the ability of societies to pay for the vast investments that are needed to meet the SDGs. You know, in some countries, there are huge infrastructure needs. Um, uh, in others that are more affected by climate change mitigation, um, achieving SDGs is enormously expensive. There are estimates out there that, you know, it costs, and this is before this estimates before the current COVID pandemic, that achieving a sustainable development goals targets would cost between five to seven trillion US dollars a year around the world. So corruption, first of all, reduces the amount of tax a state is able or willing to collect. But it also reduces the effectiveness of developmental spending by governments, international donors, impact investors, impact, sorry, impact investors, remittances, and so on and so forth. So corruption frustrates both the effective mobilization of finance for development, as well as its kind of effective disbursement by weakening, you know, we talk about things like domestic revenue mobilization, development finance, public financial management, asset recovery, which really again speaks to the international element that you highlighted in your introductory comments, the linkages between countries and how corruption doesn't stop at national borders, which I think is a really important aspect that I hope we'll speak more about. So I'd say in summary, without kind of progress towards tackling corruption, any progress towards any of the sustainable development goals is going to be fragmentary, short-lived and quite volatile. Sometimes I've heard people say um, that sometimes SDG 16 should actually be SDG 1. This should be the kind of the first, the first priority that we have, because without achieving any of these other things, the rest is going to be really difficult to accomplish. I would just end quickly. I know I've taken quite a lot of time, but I want to end by the introductory remarks by um, emphasizing that though corruption affects us all, it doesn't affect us all equally between and within societies. So corruption is often inherently discriminatory. The poor and marginalized are disproportionately affected by the way that corruption restricts economic growth, increases poverty and skews resource distribution. Um, we have a forthcoming um, study on particularly how the relationship and interplay between corruption and discrimination against marginalized groups frustrates the leave no one behind principle at the heart of the um, 2030 agenda. And I think this is a really important to emphasize as well. So. Thank you, Matthew. And I know you have done this um, research on uh, specifically on grant corruption and SDGs in at Transparency International, and you showcased that there was some serious effects on on specific goals. Uh, I think in Mozambique and um, and in two other countries. And and can you talk a little bit about that research and and what you found and why specifically focus on grant corruption and not other forms of corruption that happen every day in, in those communities? 
Sure, it's a really interesting question, Nina. Thanks a lot. Yeah, the other two countries we looked at uh, were Guatemala and the Maldives. And so what we were looking at is how different types of corruption scandal and forms of corruption had devastated these countries' abilities to meet some of all of their SDG targets. So maybe it'd be helpful for me just to start by outlining what we mean by grand corruption which often is referred to by different names. For instance, the UN Convention Against Corruption um, indirectly alludes to it uh, with the rather clumsy title of the corruption involving vast quantities of assets. Um, so there are kind of competing definitions, but most definitions of grand corruption have three common features to try and distinguish it from what is sometimes called um, petty corruption or street level bribery. And before going on to, to explain a bit what I mean about grand corruption, I would just point out that although we call it petty corruption, you know, it's uh, street level bribery that you're having to pay um, typically to public, public officials in return for a service or a good that you're entitled to anyway. Yeah. Although we call it petty corruption, the effects of petty corruption are not themselves petty or insignificant, right? They're cumulative. So widespread extortion inflicts real harm on a large pool of victims and worsens the standard of living. Having said that kind of caveat, <laughs> I just come back to um, why we wanted to kind of prioritize grand corruption in these series of papers um, and, and why that's such a significant issue. So grand corruption schemes often um, involve sums of money that are so large that single that one of these corruption schemes can endanger the political stability of a country uh, or kind of put in or jeopardize sustainable development of the of a country in general. Um, second, unlike petty corruption, where the perpetrator, as I said, is more likely to be a low-level or mid-level official, those culpable of grand corruption are often found at the highest level of government. Um, so they're they're corruption that they uh, they engage in is constitutes a major abuse of power that can erode the rule of law um, and even in some cases result in state capture. And obviously, because these people are very high profile and, and, and powerful, they often enjoy kind of widespread impunity for their actions. And the third distinction is, um, uh, is that quite often in grand corruption cases, it has a transnational aspect to it. So mm. grand corruption quite often involves resources crossing bound national borders. Um, and, you know, you'll see that development funds that should be spent in some countries end up in other countries in, in kind of secretive accounts. Mm. Um, so we essentially wrote these kind of three case studies to illustrate the policy problem we have, which is that most of the common corruption and the sustainable development goals focus on petty bribery. Um, the global indicators that are used to assess progress in, in tackling corruption in SDG 16 do so, you know, they're talking about what's the rate of petty bribery, whereas actually these kind of larger systemic forms of corruption that we see may be less immediately apparent if you're um, doing business in the country, if you're act interacting um, in the country, but arguably have a much greater detrimental effect on sustainable development. And I just uh, conclude this, uh, these comments by illustrating quickly three kind of ways that we think it does that. So grand corruption, first of all, at the highest level of government can often deprive public coffers of, uh, of much needed development funds. So we took the example of Mozambique, where there was a huge uh, public debt scandal, which has indebted the country to such an extent that paying for any kind of development initiative from healthcare and education to poverty eradication becomes so difficult because uh, essentially political elites in the country have defrauded the tax firm. The second way is where we see large kind of scale corruption schemes in a particular ministry. So in Guatemala, we looked at how corruption in the health ministry had crippled the ability of the health ministry to deliver good quality health care to citizens. And the third type is where we see 
um, clear undue influence of the public policy that's related to sustainable development. And here, I think particularly of um, the debate around climate change and the fact that petrochemical companies quite often exercise undue influence over national climate policy. So I emphasize that we chose these three cases, but really we could have taken any number of cases from around the world. We had a long list of 30 different ones that we were looking at. So what we're trying to do at TI is to get the international community as a first step to recognize that grand corruption is a, is a problem in and of its own right, really, by adopting mm -hmm. a legal definition that would help to prosecute grand corruption as an especially kind of devastating crime on uh, that, that deprives countries the chance to, to meet their national development goals. Unfortunately, we've had some kind of limited success to now. I mean, as you can understand, the point I was making about impunity is that uh, this kind of goes against the vested interests. If you have um, if you have uh, political leaders from from certain countries who are engaged in these schemes, they have a vested interest in vetoing progress at the international level and introducing these kinds of uh, in introducing these kinds of measures. Absolutely, and this. It's always international, as you say. I remember maybe a few years ago, there was a big corruption scandal in Tanzania and it involved um, it involved a standard bank in the UK. It was the yeah. country raising debts from from it, it was a it was a debt transaction and it was it's a, it was a corrupt corrupt transaction as it involved some um, maybe heavyweights in the country. and the way we came to know about it was from the, I was it the FCC or something or the in the US, or oh, it was the SEC that had the SEC in the US that had found out that this mm -hmm. was actually happening, and and it implicated the it implicated Standard Bank in the UK and some banks in Tanzania. So this whole connection was like three different countries involved in one scandal. It was kind of interesting to see. Mm, so absolutely. It, yeah, it's quite grand in its own um, even coverage as well. And it may be happening somewhere you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think actually, you know, I mean, having three countries is also not that you know there are there are examples where many many more just jurisdictions are involved right particularly through the process of using shell companies where the mm -hmm. beneficial owner the true owner the person that benefits from these transactions is hidden between multiple layers of, of firms that are created for these kind of very corrupt purposes mm -hmm. and are often registered in secrecy jurisdictions so often there's kind of dozens of jurisdictions involved and what we need to realize is, is an intentional attempt to try and make these transactions as complex as possible for prosecutors to to uncover the corruption that's going on. Yeah, and uh, I think the World Economic Forum said something about 3.9 trillion trillion US dollars being lost to corruption every year. That is a significant sum of money that could be used um, in sustainable development, and it's just lost into somebody's pockets somewhere out there in the world. Now, speaking of this, um, let's talk a little bit about um, about the role of civil societies in this in this in this um in in stopping or in in this anti-corruption efforts Priska you work with uh policy forum and you you work directly with the parliament tell us a little bit about the kind of work you do and why it's so important in 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 stopping um exactly what Matthew has told us about um thank you thank you so much Neema um Without wasting time, I think I'll respond to your question on what CSO's role is in the fight against co corruption. 
And like you said in the introduction, um, Policy Forum is a network of civil society organizations that have been brought up together in the interest of ensuring that the, there's accountable use of public money. So we have a set of activities that are being implemented by the uh, members of Policy Forum in the main two working groups that we work with. We have the budget working group as well as the local governance working group. And all these working groups engage um, at the national level and at the local level. So what do we do in the fight against, against, against corruption? Um, number one, at the, at the local level, and linking this to the goal 16, that was for peace, justice, and strong institutions, we do social accountability monitoring. And what we do, we conduct analysis of the planning and budgets um, of the, at the district level. And most cases, we want to see if there's accountability in the use of public funds. And if at all there are cases of misuse of the funds, we provide recommendations on how to improve the usage of the, uh, uh, these public resources, and then we conduct, engage, we engage with the duty bearers at that level to share our findings. That is what at the local level, uh, that is what we do at the local level. And we have, in the past, uh, in the past um, three to four four years, we we were seeing a lot of misuse of funds that in the end resulted into the poor service provision, especially we were looking where we were, we, we looked at how the health budget has been was spent. We also looked at how water sector um, budget was allocated and how accountable the funds allocated were, were used. Um, and last year we did an engagement with one of the district council whereby we we work with councillors. Councillors, these are the oversight bodies at the local level, that they're the ones that need to ensure uh, the funds allocated are being spent wisely and result to the um, um, quality service provision. Um, so we saw there are weaknesses in revenue co collection as a result of number number of things. So after our engagement, we saw that there were slight improvements, but there were still some weaknesses in the use in the accountable use of, of public uh, resources. Um, another thing that we do, and this is through the budget uh, budget working group, um, we have been engaging in the in conducting campaigning and producing stud on how the um, illicit financial flows affects the revenue resources in the country. And here is when we get to engage directly with the parliament committee, the parliamentary budget committee, uh, whereby we avail the, the, I mean, the evidences from the study that we conducted and we provide recommendations. And um, um, since in 20, 2016, we, 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 in East Africa, there was a, a campaign on the Stop the Bleeding campaign. This campaign aimed at, you know, the, the whole East African countries to come together and call into their government to stop the illicit financial flows within their countries. And one of the recommendations that we gave out was to ensure that, number one, we, we saw that a lot of, uh, of fun, a lot of, of resources are being lost in the extractive, uh, extractive contracts. So one of the things that we are advocating for the government to include in the law was to start a beneficial ownership registry. 
And this campaign started um, so many years back. So um, it was really good to see that in the Finance Act of this year, um, the Act included the beneficial ownership registry that in the, uh, again, in the Anti-Money Laundering Act. So we, we, we see that as uh, a political will within the government to start at least curbing the uh, the, 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 the curbing the illicit uh, financial flows in in um, in, in Tanzania. Um, apart apart from that, we have also been engaging in enhancing transparency in the mining contracts. So, like I said, um, there are, there's something called double taxation agreement. So, another area that we work with is is to advocate for transparency and. Uh, publication of the mining contracts so that uh, Tanzanians and citizens can be able to, to see um, how the mining, um, how the, the mining uh, companies are paying taxes so as to increase the domestic uh, revenue resources. As we know that uh, one way in which uh, the country loses, loses its, its, its revenues is through this corrupt um, uh, um, the, uh, the mining contracts not being uh, dis disclosed to the public. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, the area that we have been engaging in, in a nutshell. As a it, it seems that transparency is a big deal because you're advocating for transparency in specifically in Tanzania and also um, and Transparency International is trying to do the same. <laughs> um, but here I have a question really about this. Um, how 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 difficult is it to kind of trans to 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 advocate for transparency in in, in these countries and you you want political will but at the same time you have um, people have vested interest in this in this corruption how how uh, what kind of challenges do you face in trying to you know advocate for transparency as a CSO and even as a big organization as transparency. Um, that's that's a very good question, Neema. Um, of recently, um, when you compare the um, the level of um, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of criticizing the government in the past five years, and when you're in the context that we are operating now, we can say the environment has significantly changed. We have seen that now the government has enacted very restrictive laws. That, in a way, makes the advocates' work, especially to the CSOs like Policy Forum, um, being very difficult. We have um, uh, 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 um, the NGO Act that was amended last year, and it has some clauses which restricts um, restrictly how freely non-state actors can be operating. So that is one of the major challenges that we are now facing. And this is not only to the CSO sector, but we've also seen there are, there are other restrictions to the media. And we know that media are also important actors in unveiling, cor in unveiling corruption cases. So that's a major challenge. And again, looking at how we are operating now, when we largely depend on the information from the government itself and now we have seen attendance where there's a fear among the government officials on 
on freely working in collaboration with the CSOs. So um, how are we still, you know, sustaining in our work? You know, they say it's important to learn, relearn and adjust according to the way the environment, you know, changes. You adjust mm -hmm. to the context. So what we do now, we focus more on partnering with the government institutions like PCCB. So for example, last year, PCCB is the, uh, you know, PCCB. Uh, uh, and the and Prevention and yes. Combating Corruption Bureau. Here in Tanzania. So Policy Forum now is working with the PCCB. And last year we engaged with PCCB in, um, in educating the public on how to avoid corruption during election. And like you know that this year is an election year. So we have some of the TV spots that were aired in the media calling upon the citizens, uh, voters, as well as content, uh, people who are contesting in different posts not to engage in the, in the corruption cases. So those are the, some of the, of the um, challenges that we are, we are seeing now. Matthew, do you think these kind of challenges are just specific to, to, to Tanzania or do you see the same kind of patterns in other countries as well? Um, that when you, when you have strong advocacy, there's always this pushback from the people in power to, to, to maintain the status quo really because it benefits some of them. Yeah, well, let me just say first of all that the the work that Priscilla described sounds sounds really um, sounds really inspiring in, in a challenging environment and the things that she was speaking about. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's it's it really speaks to the need to uh, hold those in power to account. We see that transparency is a kind of a necessary but not sufficient condition um, for for anti-corruption work. It's about shifting power towards citizens and accountability and doing that complementary approaches from the bottom with things like CSO budget monitoring at the local level and then um, uh, complementing that with advocacy around the international global effects around the work of, um, of international sorry illicit financial flows and beneficial ownership transparency is um, is, is really admirable um, so first of all um, love to hear more about about that from Prisca but in terms of whether we see the same same patterns I'd say context matters, right? So we see different forms of corruption in different places. So our strategies in different places need to be different. Having said that, it is a common trend that, you know, when um, when civil society and citizens starts and media actors and others start to be empowered to challenge corrupt practices, we quite often see a pushback. And I think globally around the world at the moment, we're seeing uh, shrinking civic space, which makes the um, actions of um, civil society actors and others who are trying to curb corruption even more difficult than it already is. And so to conclude, I'm going to ask you, what can an individual like me do? What can we do individually? Because it seems like such a huge problem, but what can we actually do to, to make a difference? Do you have any thoughts about it? Do you want to start with me or with, or with Prisco? You can continue. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, as I said, I mean, I could follow on from the from the from the final thought that I uh, that I uh, just spoke about, which is as corruption takes many kind of locally specific manifestations, our anti-corruption approaches have to be tailored to those as well. So here, I would kind of encourage this this mantra of kind of thinking globally and act locally. Um, 
Having said that, you know, politics is is often the art of the possible. So it depends on the setting as to what individuals can do. It may be um, in a jurisdiction like the UK where I'm from. Um, it may be, first of all, you kind of identify what the issue is in, in a place like the UK. It might be the influx of dirty money um, and identifying the kind of the, the policy problems that come with that. You know, there's so much money uh, so much corrupt dirty money coming into let's say the london housing market that it has clear impacts for 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 uk citizens and other residents of, of a particular city like london with kind of global house prices rising so i think first of all start with the problem definition in a particular context and then try and uh, take it from there in terms of what is the problem how what are the possible approaches to uh, to tackle it so you know it might be in the uk as i said pushing for transparent asset recovery for some of this dirty money that's ending up in London to go back to where it belongs and, and back to where it's been generated legitimately. Um, in other settings it, it, where, let's say, the civic space is, uh, is, 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 uh, is a bit more fragile, it may be around, uh, you know, public campaigning for for greater civic space and, you know, having more legitimate stakeholders involved in, in political debate and political discourse. It might be around things like um, access to information campaigns, civil society groups and individuals working with with media. And I'd say you asked specifically about individuals, I know. So I'm saying citizens, journalists, CSOs, the private sector, we all have a role to play in this. Um, and I think, you know, it requires all of us to actively participate. A, a good starting point, and perhaps this is a bit of a, a plug or self-promotion, but a good starting point is to get in touch with a with a local well, with the national transparency international chapter if there is one in your your country to see how you can get involved um we don't have we do have a presence in a hundred countries around the world there are countries in which we don't have a ti presence but we do have contacts so please uh, feel free to get in, in touch with us and you know if you are in a in a setting where there is no ti chapter consider starting one yourself thank you what about prisco what kind what kind of final thoughts do you have um, I'll start by saying that uh, transparency is a habit. So at the individual level, we should strive to be transparent. We should strive not to be corrupt. We should embed anti-corruption perception within our daily lives, but also to embed it in organizations. How do we work? Being able to say transparently that I cannot be able to pay for a service that I'm entitled to. So when someone goes to, to a public hospital, for instance, and linking this into your poem that you started with, then individuals should be empowered in a way that they'll be able to openly demand for their rights. And I know I'm entitled to this by uh, my country's constitutions, I'm entitled to getting this particular service without paying extra. So I think it should be, it should start at the individual level, but again, being transferred at the organization and up to the national and the, to the international, as we are seeing that corruption cases affects all of us globally. And like today's topic, we are seeing that corruption action um, affects uh, sustainable development goals. Thank you both so much. So it seems you're saying we should all strive to shift power from the more powerful in society to, 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 to the citizens and, and be more actionable in the local level I to think make that's the a, difference. 
I think that's a key aspect and, and, and certainly I think it's about realising it can sometimes seem very difficult to, to challenge established ways of doing things. Um, you know, it seems like a small cog in the machine, but I think, you know, as, as Puska was emphasising, taking small steps and realising that, that you're not alone and we're all having to deal with this kind of suboptimal outcomes of, of corrupt activities. So even if it may seem advantageous in, in the moment to pursue a corrupt way of, uh, of, of concluding a transaction, ultimately realising it's kind of detrimental to all of us in the, in the long run and trying to overcome what, what's sometimes referred to as a collective action problem, right? This leads to suboptimal outcomes for all of us if we can collaborate um, uh, more productively and we can join together as you know citizens, as journalists, as civil society representatives, as uh, private sector entities, then together I think is, is the way that we have to try and tackle this scourge. Thank you so much. And I think this is all the time we have uh, for this episode of Sustainability Unwrapped. Thank you, Matthew and Priska, for your insights. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me.